Uh, We are used to better, used to change, to things being superseded. We even have something called built-in obsolescence and almost uncritically accept that the latest will be better. And so we're always, in a sense, looking to move on, you know, changing, chasing that better house, that better job, and sometimes without fully appreciating what we have now. In fact, sometimes we're not even sure on what basis we should think something is better. And in our society, that is particularly true in matters of faith. Our society, having decided that what a person believes about God is not about truth, has actually reduced better to what makes me feel better or what suits me better. The ancient world, of course, was very different. They looked back to the past as a golden era. That was the better time. What had always been, they thought, should never be changed. The old was good because it gave stability to community and identity through connection to forebears. And so the kind of change believers in Jesus had made, leaving the traditional religion of their forefathers, was monumental. And now that established order was pushing back, pressuring them. But the pressure wasn't just external to them. It was also internal. I mean, they were ancient people. This played on their minds. What they'd left had lasted centuries. How could they think this Jesus thing, being devoted to this crucified criminal, was better? Well, the author of Hebrews is out to show that believing in Jesus, trusting him for life, is better. Oh, not better in an incremental way, an improvement on a continuous scale like moving from an iPhone 5 to an iPhone 6. No, better absolutely because Jesus alone addressed our needs that the old religion could never address. Jesus alone did the job the old religion could never do, bring forgiveness. Jesus alone brought real relationship with the living God forever in this age and the next. And for all those reasons, Jesus is always better. (laughs) Always better so that the first hearers of Hebrews shouldn't move back to Judaism. Oh, always better so that we should never think it right to move on to any other claim to bring us to God. Well, to make those points, the author in chapter 7, as we heard, had started a long comparison between the old religion, the religion of the old covenant, comparing the high priesthood of Jesus with the high priest of Levi, those established under the Sinai covenant. And in chapter 8, he's going to continue that comparison. And he starts by recalling what he has just said. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's just spoken at the end of the last chapter of the high priest we need. And he says, Jesus is that one. He's better because he has an indestructible life. He's better because of his sinless character. Oh, he's better because his priesthood has been established with an oath 
And so we know it is certain and forever. It's better because he continues to be high priest forever, the one who can save us from all time and completely. We do have such a priest. But here he wants to draw our attention to two things about that priest. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true, ten, true tabernacle, not set up by the Lord, not set up by the Lord, sorry, not by a mere human being. Two things he wants to draw his attention, our attention to. Firstly, Jesus' position. He sat down. And secondly, to the location of his service. Now, Jesus sitting down in the presence of God, the majesty on high, is an idea our author introduced way back in chapter 1 and it's one he'll return to in chapter 10. Chapter 10. And sat down speaks of three things. Firstly, it speaks of the completion of Jesus' work. He's sitting down because he's finished making sacrifice for all time because the sacrifice he has made of himself is effective. Secondly, it also speaks of Jesus' rule because he rules as the son, the son of Psalm 110, to whom the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. But thirdly, the idea of sitting down also speaks of presence, of being permanently in the presence of the Lord, the, the God of heaven and earth. You know, he's staying there. He's not going in and out. He sits down. And it's this last idea of presence that the author wants to develop to help us understand how much more effective the priesthood of Jesus is. You see, he speaks of Jesus' presence in the presence of God by telling us of the location of Jesus' priestly service. Verse 2, it's in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by people. Now, like the rest of Hebrews, there is a lot of assumed knowledge here. You see, to make for his first here is the comparison between Jesus and the priests of the Old Covenant easier. He talks of the location of Jesus' service by using the sign of God's presence in Israel. When God had rescued Israel from Egypt and taught them about how they could live with him as his people, he'd included in that instruction about what was called the tabernacle. And that was a special tent that was the sign of God's presence with the people. And that tent had two parts. front part, called the holy place, into which the priests went daily, and the back part, separated by a curtain, called the holy of holies, the most holy place, in which was the Ark of the Covenant, and into which the high priest went only once a year. And the temple that Solomon had built hundreds of years later to replace the tabernacle had continued that basic structure. Now both tabernacle and temple were the God-given way of showing Israel that their God dwelt amongst them. Oh, and at the same time showing them that he was the holy God who could only be approached his way. And in both tabernacle and temple, the two parts could be called the sanctuary, the holy places. Now, in contrast to the earthly priests, the author calls the place where Jesus serves as priest the true 
tabernacle because it's the one that's been erected, pitched by the Lord God himself. Now, true, he doesn't mean that the tabernacle in the wilderness was a lie. True actually has the sense of genuine, heavenly, perfect and eternal versus the earthly, imperfect and temporary provision of the old covenant of that tent in the wilderness. And that's part of a larger contrast the author will continue to make between the old covenant and Jesus. That contrast between the earthly, the heavenly, the temporary, the eternal, the present and what was related to the age to come. And his point is that Jesus conducts his priestly work, the work he'll develop in chapter 9, in God's very presence, not in some earthly sign of God's presence. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because, verse 3, priests have a job to do, to offer gifts and sacrifices. And to do that, they need a place, a place in which to offer. All his first hearers accepted that. They knew that priests and their work were associated with holy places, with temples. But for Jesus to do his work, verse 4, he needs a different location than that earthly temple. The old covenant, the earthly tabernacle, already has its priests offering the gifts commanded in the law, that is, in the old covenant. So there's no place for Jesus' priesthood and his sacrifice under that covenant, a point that he's already made in chapter 7 and reinforces here. But the work of those priests actually was always going to be temporary and unable to bring perfection, unable to equip people to live in God's presence in the age to come. The location of their work actually brings home the significance, the earthly, the temporary nature of their work. You see, the priests of Levi serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. In fact, he says... The Old Testament itself makes clear in the instructions given to Moses in the book of Exodus, one of which is quoted here, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The Old Testament itself makes clear that the heavenly pre-existed and is the original and genuine, the eternal, while the earthly was just what he calls a copy and a shadow. See, what you got in the earthly tabernacle and temple, as one author put it, was a glimpse as distinct from a vision, a partial suggestion as distinct from a complete expression, a shadow as distinct from the reality of heaven. He actually uses three images here, copy, shadow, pattern, to kind of give the relationship be between the eternal and the heavenly and the earthly. And to get a feel of it, just think of one image, a shadow. Think of your shadow. It gives a general shape, but it's insubstantial, isn't it? Prone to distortion, short on details, never an exact correspondence. It can suggest the original, but not give a picture of it. It can be used to, take, uh, to train our thinking about the genuine, to help us recognise when we see it, but it can never substitute for it, can it? I mean, the shadow of a house won't keep the rain off. The shadow of a car give you the shape of the car, but it won't get you to your destination. 
The author will have a lot more to say about this, but his point is that the location of Jesus' priestly activity in the real and genuine, in the presence of God, means it is so much better, so much more real and effective than the work of those priests of the Old Covenant who served in the earthly tabernacle, that copy and shadow. In fact, as we go on in verse 6, he says, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. How much better, how much more excellent Jesus' priestly service is than that of the priests of the old covenant can, he said, be seen by appreciating how much better the covenant Jesus brings is to the old covenant under which those other priests operated. And our author's going to show us that by taking us to the one place where a new covenant is mentioned, Jeremiah 31, which he quotes at length. Uh, in verses 8 to 12. But before we go on, what is a covenant? I wonder if I should make that not a rhetorical question. Take, because, I mean, the word's used a lot in the Bible, isn't it? And it's actually always assumed that we know what it is. But let's pause and make sure. So, what's a covenant? At its simplest, you can think of a covenant as a solemn binding agreement between two parties in a relationship, a binding agreement that clarifies and formalises their commitment, their obligations to each other in that relationship. Sometimes it was accompanied by making what would clear what would happen if, if the parties failed to keep the covenant. Oh, and what would happen if they kept it? The consequences, as it were, of faithless, faithfulness or otherwise to the covenant. And sometimes it might be accompanied by sacrifice when it was first instituted or the setting up of some kind of memorial to help remember the covenant. Now, covenants were part of the everyday life of people in the Old Testament. So in the Bible you'll read about a covenant between Abraham and his neighbour Abimelech to settle the issue of water and wells. A covenant between Jonathan and David, a covenant between King Ahab and the neighbouring King Ben-Hadad. Even the covenant that's made between a husband and wife. They were solemn, binding commitments, but part of everyday life. And throughout the Old Testament, you'll also read how God used this common idea to speak of his relationship with his people. You'll read of God entering into covenants with individuals and with the nation Israel. So God entered into covenants with Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with David. And at Mount Sinai, as you heard in Exodus 24, God entered into a covenant with the people he had rescued from Egypt, the people of Israel. Now because God is God, the covenants he enters into have certain distinctive features. He initiates them. They originate with him. And he doesn't negotiate the terms of the commitment. He decides freely what he will commit himself to and he decides what response is required from the other party. He dictates to his covenant partner what will be expected of them in entering into the covenant. And the obligations of the covenant were binding. 
binding on both parties. In the covenant we heard about, the one God entered into at Mount Sinai with the nation Israel, Israel's obligation was spelled out in the law. And you heard in Exodus the Israelites solemnly committing themselves to keep the law, the whole law. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And God attached to that covenant, as we see in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. That is, he made clear what would follow if the Israelites kept the covenant or broke it. And at the beginning, God brought home the seriousness of that covenant they were entering into it into by sealing its commencement with a sacrifice. That was a reminder that death, the shedding of blood, was involved in being in covenant with God. Either a sacrificial death that dealt with their sin or the death of the covenant breaker. Now it's this Sinai covenant that's being referred to here in Hebrews 8 as the old one, the first covenant. But it's said in verse 8 that God found fault with the people. But what we're about to see is the people's fault highlights the limitations of that old covenant. It will not be like, verse 9, the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, that covenant made out of Sinai, made at Sinai, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. That was the problem. The people had experienced God's kindness and mercy in rescuing them from Egypt. God had given them good laws. He'd brought them into the promised land. But history, right up to the time of Jeremiah and beyond, had shown repeatedly that the people had not been faithful to the covenant. They hadn't given their saving God their worship and loyalty. They'd gone and worshipped other gods. That unfaithfulness had started almost straight away at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. It was repeated again and again in the book of Judges. It continued through the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah, despite being God being very patient, despite God giving them opportunities to come back. And yes, it was rife and blatant in Jeremiah's day. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known or forbidden in the Ten Commandments? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. In fact, that rebellion, that disobedience, continued right up to the author of Hebrews' day, as we read in Romans 2, as Paul speaks of the Jews. <laughs> you who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? Oh, yes. And God, verse 9, had been faithful to his covenant. I turned away from them. That is, God had delivered them up to the judgments for those who broke the covenant that he had spoken of. Judgments climaxing in the destruction of the temple, the loss of the land, the scattering of the people. And this persistent unfaithfulness of the people actually shows us the problem with the Old Covenant. Despite the laws being good, it couldn't make the people good. 
He couldn't change them. He couldn't change their hearts. They kept going their own way. They kept doing what pleased them and not what God commanded. Oh, and its sacrifices could never cover over the offence of their willful sin. And so the law actually condemned them, pronounced judgment on them, drove them away from God's presence. The old covenant could not overcome these fundamental barriers to an enduring and secure relationship with God, the relationship God had promised he would have with his people in Genesis 17. In fact, what the old covenant did, what, what the Lord does is actually reveal the depths of the problem of the human heart. You see, the people of Israel didn't fail because they are worse than the rest of us. No, they fail because they are just like the rest of us, children of Adam who have a problem with their creator. <laughs> because of the way we are, good laws provoke bad behaviour. And it is a problem we have with God, all of us. From Adam, we've resented God being God and expecting our praise and love and obedience. We're like the prodigal with his father in the story Jesus told. We want God out of the way, out of our lives, so we can get on using what he has in his kindness given us the way we want to please ourselves without thanks or acknowledgement to him. Kind, wanting God out of our lives, when we hear what God wants, his command, we want to do the opposite to show who is the boss. And this problem we have with God then overflows into a problem we have with each other. As each of us lives self-centred lives where we will do whatever it takes to secure our own way and happiness. Well, that's lie or steal or disobey parents or flatter or gossip. Paul's got a list in Rome. Oh, we won't do it all the time, just when we really need it. Oh, and this problem with God and his laws is a problem we have even when we approve his laws, or at least those we agree with. Now, we need to remember this human heart problem expressed in Israel's history so we don't think we can relate to God on the basis of our obedience, our performance, ever. I mean, if we can't keep God's law, they couldn't, we can't. Why would we think that substituting our own rules will make God somehow indebted to our goodness? That substitution itself is another act of rebellion. But with this heart problem, how can anyone ever have hope of relating to the holy living God, the source of all life and good? Oh, and how will God ever have a people of his own, as he said he would, a people who will love him as we were created to do, who will listen to him, who will rejoice in him? And notice this is an objective problem. It's not a question of how you feel. God is holy, we sin, sin deserves death, yet life is only found in being at peace with God. How can we live? Well, the promise of the new covenant is that God will make it possible. Look at what this new covenant, this new relationship with God promises. 
This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The first promise. The first promise in the words of the similar passage in Ezekiel is that God will give us new hearts, hearts that are now oriented to God, that want to love him and do his will, where he puts his laws in our minds, writes them on our hearts. You see, that's saying uh, that uh, God will fill the thinking of those who relate to God under the terms of the new covenant with his laws, his righteous standards. It will now shape the way they see the world so that those in the new covenant will no longer see their place in the world threatened by God's place in the world as its creator and ruler. No, they'll see it as right that God's law gives the shape of the moral reality to which they conform their lives. Oh, and it says God's law will shape and direct their will. That's what it means for the law to be written on their hearts. The heart's the willing, directing centre of a person. And when God's law is written on our hearts, we will will to do God's will. That is what will direct our wills. Our wills will be directed by love of God, not love of self. And where that's the case... Those in the new covenant will be truly God's people. What God intended from the time of Abraham to have a people of his own will be fulfilled. I will be their God and they will be my people. God says he will bring that about. But notice it is God's law written on our hearts. The old covenant, as we heard in verse 13 and we'll come to, oh yeah, that's passed away. But the standard of righteousness, the behaviour that pleases God, hasn't changed. His laws, as Paul says in Romans, have always been holy, righteous and good. It is his people who will be changed, not God's standards. And when you think about it, this new heart is... Actually, why believers in Jesus can sometimes experience frustration, tension, even discouragement in living the Christian life, which does have commands. Our hearts are changed. We want to do God's will and we are frustrated by our less than perfect performance while we are being changed. But don't be discouraged. Be encouraged if you experience that kind of frustration and grief about not being able to live the life you know God wants you to. Because that frustration is a sign of life, not death, of a new heart, not a hard heart. In the new covenant, God promises changed hearts that will want to love God and do his will. And in the new covenant, God promises a new relation, a real relationship with the living God to everyone included in the new covenant. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the old covenant was made with the whole nation Israel. 
And so they were all included in the externals of the covenant, you know, going up to the temple and making sacrifice. But as we saw in Jeremiah, they could do that while their hearts were given to other gods. They had the form of a relationship, but not the reality. But in the new covenant, every member will have the reality. They will know God as a matter of their own personal experience with no privileged class standing between them and God. Every member of this covenant, whoever they are, whatever their abilities or status, children, the poor, the powerless, as well as, yes, the mature, the wealthy, everyone in this covenant will know God, and that is wonderful. Because to know the Lord is to be committed to him, it's to be shaped by the reality of the relationship to become like him, as God always intended for his people, that they be holy as he is holy. And yes, it's to be able to call on him, for you know his name, to call on him and to know he will hear you. You see, to know the Lord for yourself is to not be lost and alone in the universe. So whether it's in prison, or on the hospital bed, or in the chaos of a school day morning, or in the pressure of the workplace, or in a playground where you're being bullied. Those in the new covenant know that they know the Lord and he knows them and their lives. And they know they can always come to him for mercy and help. In fact, our Lord says, that to know the true God and Jesus Christ who brings us knowledge of him is to have eternal life. And you know, when Jesus brings this covenant into effect, he actually shows us this intimacy, the intimacy of this relationship. Those included in the new covenant through faith in its mediator, the Lord Jesus, will know the Lord as their father. To be in the new covenant is to have a relationship with the living God, your own personal relationship dependent on no other human, where you know yourself as his child and you know you can always come to him. In the new covenant, distance is overcome, access is assured. We have a real relationship with the God we can call our Father and that is a secure relationship, for this relationship isn't established on obedience. It isn't established even on perfect obedience to the law written on our hearts. No, it is established on forgiveness. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That forgiveness we so much need, we are assured, will be full and final. You see, for God to remember is for God to act. And God is saying here that he will never call our sins to mind to act on them in judgment. Our sins will never arise as an issue in our relationship with him. They will never separate us from God and his love. Now just think of that for a moment. Think of your sin, where you know you have failed to do what God says, that lie that unkindness, that anger, that lust, that ingratitude, that pride that's actually blinded you. 
You know those sins. And you know what they deserve. But God says they are forgiven for those included in the new covenant. So Peter's abandonment of Jesus will never be brought up by God. Paul's persecution, that won't come before God to turn him against Paul. Oh, and you're, you're so failure to be the husband or wife you knew you should have been. That failure to parent in the way you ought. Your secret shame. Those things, if you're relating to God in the new covenant, will never be brought up again. See, what the old covenant could never bring, what we need, each of us, the new covenant brings. New hearts, a real relationship with the almighty, eternal God forgiveness. And notice it is all God's initiative. God is describing in Jeremiah 31 what he will do. Describing what he commits himself to do in entering into this solemn relationship, this binding commitment which is a covenant. This covenant is a gift where God speaks only of what he will do to make it possible for us, for you to live in relationship with him. This covenant is a gift where God commits himself to overcoming all the barriers to his people living with him. This relationship of the new covenant is all of grace, an extraordinary grace that brings sinful people to live in relationship with the holy God forever. And God brings this covenant into being through his son, through the sacrifice he has made once for all on the cross, as was mentioned at the end of chapter 7 and we'll see more of in chapter 9. Jesus is the source of the effective forever forgiveness that includes believers in Jesus in the new covenant forever. Jesus, not your achievement. Oh, and where the new covenant comes, verse 13, the old disappears. By calling this covenant new, which God did in Jeremiah, God, here in Jeremiah, made the first one obsolete. And what's obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. In fact, now that Christ has come, it has, in a sense, disappeared. Now, I'm not saying the Old Testament has ceased to be the word of God or of value in teaching us God's righteous will. I mean, how could you read Hebrews and think that? It's all of the Old Testament. But verse 13 is saying that the Old Covenant will never again be the basis for being God's people. Where the new has come, the old no longer has a place in achieving God's redemptive purpose for his people we don't relate to God on the basis of that old covenant, but on the basis of the new. Now, I could say that going back to the old covenant would be like, well, something we know has been superseded. Oh, going back to celluloid when you have digital. But of course, celluloid still has some functionality. No, no, it's more like going back to operating without anaesthetic when anaesthetic's freely available. That is, it's painful and potentially deadly. Why would you ever think of doing it? The way of the law is obsolete 
and dissipate. It's finished. Now you have to remember that. When you're tempted to put your doing as the basis of your relating to God, of knowing his love and that he's your father. Because that will drive you to despair or puff you up, but it will never relate you to God. We relate to God now on the basis of his new covenant, on the basis of the promises that he has freely made here, not on what we have done. And as I have said we, who, who is included in this new covenant? Verse 8 spoke of a covenant with Israel and Judah. Yet I've spoken throughout as if it's believers in Jesus with whom God enters into this covenant. And that is clearly the case. Jesus is, as we heard in verse 6 and we read again in chapter 9, the mediator of this covenant. That is, he is the one who brings the two parties together the two parties to the covenant together by his work, his death as a ransom, which we'll talk more about next week. But, but really it's saying that Jesus, the covenant keeper, has suffered the death of the covenant breaker so that we who have broken God's law can be freed from that penalty and be included in this new covenant. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear that he brings this new covenant into being and that it's believers in Jesus who are included. Have you heard Jesus speaking in that upper room on the night before he was, he was killed? This covenant, he said, 1 Corinthians 11, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. See, Jesus is saying that this wonderful new covenant God spoke of in Jeremiah is inaugurated, is brought into effect by his death. It's believers in him, those who confess his death as the source of their forgiveness and relationship with God, who are included in the new covenant. Believers, those who rely on Jesus to draw near to the living God. It's believers who relate to God now on the basis of these wonderful promises of a new heart, a real relationship and abiding forgiveness. If you trust Jesus, these are promises God makes to you, his solemn commitment, his covenant with you. And if you don't yet trust Jesus, where else can you go for what you need, a sinner, before the just and holy God. So if you are a believer in Jesus, make every effort to live and abide in the new. Never go back to relying on yourself and what you do for a relationship with the living God. And never think of moving on from Jesus, no matter how you feel, no matter how tough it might be to follow Jesus. Jesus is better better than any claimed alternative. Islam, <coughs> Judaism, Buddhism, secularism, they all throw you back on yourself and what you do for security, identity, hope, yet you can never do what you must. And they will snare you in pride or despair, unable to come to, distant from 
the living God. This covenant is better. For it alone forms the only basis for rebels against God to find peace with the living and just God. For those who have been ignorant of God to actually know him and be known by him. Here in the new covenant is a relationship that is good and true and eternal and believers in Jesus are included in that covenant. So believer, live in the new by giving yourself to do God's will that he writes on your heart. Live as someone who knows God, who knows that actually he is their God, that they are a true child who can draw near, who can call on him and know that he will hear them. And live boasting in being forgiven, not proud, but humbled and grateful and confident, confident in your mediator and the gracious God who has promised to never remember your sins and who is faithful, who never fails in your promise. Live boasting in being forgiven and that God has promised to never have any cause, to never remember your sin, to never have any cause to drive you from his presence forever because of Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we do pray that we would know that we relate to you under the terms of the new covenant to which you have committed yourself. We pray that trusting Jesus, we would delight in your will. That trusting Jesus, we would be confident that we can call you Father, be known by you, be your people, kept by you. And that trusting Jesus, we would be confident that whatever our sin, we are forgiven for his sake the one who made himself an offering for our sin. And gracious Father, knowing this, help us to live in the new, faithful to Jesus always. We ask this in his name. Amen.